So last week, if you were here with us, um, we were continuing our series on characteristics of a thriving church. And last week, we focused in particular on being devoted to giving uh, generously. And if, you have, if you're a member of, of Mercy Church and you have not listened to that sermon, I do encourage you to do that, in part because that allows us to understand our biblical philosophy uh, for giving as members of Christ's body. And it's important. We read that the Lord loves a gracious or cheerful giver. The Lord loves it when we are generous. And he gives examples in the Bible where his people, even in extreme poverty, were so generous in, 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 in their giving. In some ways, you could say no one is excluded from the call to give. Even if you only have a little or you have a much, giving is kind of a barometer reading on your heart. Are you thankful for the gift of eternal life that God has given you in Jesus Christ? And as you are thankful for that gift, that is poured out in many different ways. And one way that is poured out is through your financial gifts. But after the sermon, and, and I like this, um, I was challenged a little bit, just a little bit. So I, you know, I don't mind a little challenge. No, I, you can challenge me anytime. But I was challenged, and, and, and a few people came to me and said, well, there's different ways to give other than just financially that financially is one way of giving. And I said, yes, I, I agree with that. I just need two or three more sermons <laughs> to, 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 to explore what it means to give outside of just our financial giving. I need three or four more sermons or two or three more sermons to talk about what it means to give, you could say, our lives. As a living sacrifice, Paul says, of thankfulness. He says in Romans chapter 12, verse Verse 1, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, to offer your lives as sacrifices, living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, or this is your true and proper worship, the ESV, a spiritual act of worship. When we give our lives, we give our time, we give our energy. We give our presence, our intentionality to people. When we give our lives to people, we are caring not just for their physical needs, but we are also caring for their emotional needs. We're caring for their spiritual needs. And so when we explore the call to give from that context, we realize that this is quite a weighty matter. To put the others to put the needs of others before yourself, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. What, what does that look like for a church of Jesus Christ? What does that mean for us as a church to put the needs of our community before our own? What does it mean for a church to love well the urban poor, the marginalized, the unnetworked, the lone parent, the refugee, the landed immigrant, the disabled, the homebound person that is at home because of a chronic health issue, the trafficked, the street involved. What does it mean to put their needs before our own? What does it mean to give when we are encouraged to practice what has been called a ministry of presence with those in our society that our society actually likes to hide? The elderly in their old age homes. The prisoner, of course, in prison. The disabled in different types of lodging homes. And the mentally ill in psych wards. What does it mean to love them? Well, 
Some of you know that I have read um, somewhat um, Henry Nouwen's works. He's going to come up a few times this morning. He asked this question, how do we form a community with the weak and thus reveal the healing, guiding, and sustaining mercy of God? He continues, if we are called to speak to people not where they have it together, but where they are aware of their pain, not where they are in control, but where they are trembling and insecure, not where they are self-assured and assertive, but where they dare to doubt and raise hard questions, we need to ask this question, how do we become, how do we give in order to be a community like that, a community for the weak? Well, I wanted to explore that question this morning with you, and in order to explore that question, we need to set our eyes on Jesus. He's our leader, he's our savior, and he's our guide when it comes to our call to give. You could say his whole life was characterized by giving, and his giving was on a downward path. We're going to get to that. He resisted the upward path of of, of, of self-reliance, of fame, of power, and a life of ease. That's not our savior. No, he chose the path of a servant, and that path of a servant led him to his willing death for you and me. That's the Savior that we're going to profile, of course, this morning, as the one who's going to help us and teach us what it means to be a community that gives well. What does it mean to follow him? So let's open our Bibles this morning then, if we have them in our pews, or you can list, watch on screen or follow on screen. We're going to Isaiah 52. As I read this uh, passage this week and reflected on it, it, it really did grip my heart deeply. It began to pry open even the tear glands of my eyes. This is a prophetic word. But it's a prophetic word about our Savior. And I want you to drink in every single one of them. Isaiah 52. The servant is Jesus. It says, see, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. And his form marred beyond human likeness, a word that happened at the cross. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. He continues, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. 
Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's captured now in the New Testament. That was written 700 years before Jesus, and Jesus fulfilled those words. Now turning to Philippians chapter 2, we read these words. This is Paul writing to the church of Philippi. He says, In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And all God's people say, Amen. That's who we're going to talk about this morning. Let's ask the Lord for a blessing. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can sit under the preaching of your word right now. We thank you for the power, for the beauty of your holy word. We thank you that your whole word, every chapter and book, points ultimately to Jesus, the Savior of our souls, and the guide to eternal life. Help us to fix our eyes on him this morning. Teach us what you ought to teach us. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. To convict us where we need conviction. May your word do an awesome work by your Holy Spirit in our hearts this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So my theme for this morning is devoted to the downward way of the servant, Jesus. Devoted to the downward way of the servant, Jesus. And I just have two points. So the, one, the first one is somewhat protracted. Embracing the downwardly mobile heart of Christ. Now, this is a little bit technical, and I'll, I'll explain it to you. <laughs> Don't worry. Embracing the downward, downwardly mobile heart of Christ, and the second one is admitting the challenge of escaping the upwardly mobile lure. Some of you are like, what's he talking about? We'll get into that. And I know that some of you listening this morning are going to say, well, Pastor Ian, aren't you... Um, exploring here with us something that you're writing about in your dissertation. Some of you might know that I'm writing a dissertation right now, and my dissertation is all about downward mobility. Um, and the answer is yes. I am going to share some of the things I'm learning from my dissertation, in part because you're supporting me through it. So uh, this, is, uh, this is my response. My dissertation question is simply this. What impact does Henry Nouwen's vision of downward mobility have on the church in urban Canada today? What impact does Henry Nouwen, Henry Nouwen has written a lot about downward mobility as a Catholic priest, 
What impact does his vision of downward mobility have on the urban church? And that's us. We're an urban church in Canada today. Now, this is not going to be a thesis defense, and neither is this going to be an academic paper. You don't want that from me. I probably can't even deliver that anyway. But what you want this morning is us, you and me, simply wrestling out some hard truth that might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable and, and, and question some of our lifestyle decisions when it comes to following a Savior who is downward and not upward in his focus. What's it mean for the church of Jesus Christ to be following a downward Savior? What's it mean to follow a Savior or embrace a downwardly mobile Lord? Well, what's downwardly mobile mean? Well, in sociology, which is where we study people and institutions and relationships and stuff, downwardly mobile means it's considered the movement of an individual or social group or class to a lower status. It's the movement of a social group, people, a class of people to a lower status. That's being downwardly mobile. And when we put that into a theological framework, when we frame that in theology, the downwardly mobile is adopting a servanthood or servant mentality. You could say a downwardly mobile Christian is a Christian rooted built up, you could say, in the servanthood of Jesus. Jesus is that servant. Let's put it through another few lenses here. A downwardly mobile Christian takes Philippians 2 very seriously on face value. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And Paul goes on to talk about what that mindset looks like, and the way that he does that is he points us to Jesus, who becomes a servant for us. That means that downward mobility is not against ambition. Downward mobility is not against excellence in your work or in your education. But it's against anyone or anything that removes Jesus from the center of your ambition. If you remove Jesus from the center of your ambition, you don't have downward mobility. You have upward mobility for your own vain glory. You could say downward mobility is taking Jesus' words from Matthew 20 at face value. Anyone who wants to be great among you must be your servant, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's downward. Downward mobility is picking up your cross and following Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 37, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. That person finds their life in this upward trajectory, always trying to find the best life now. Whoever seeks to find the best life now will lose it, Jesus says, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That's downward mobility. So what does it mean for a church to be truly willing to follow the downwardly mobile Savior? 
How are we devoted to that? How do we practice, you could say, a downwardly mobile lifestyle in order to give ourselves to the weak, to the vulnerable, to the poor, again, to the unnetworked, to the refugee, to the orphan, to the oppressed, to the marginalized, to the disabled? How do we do that? I'm exploring that question in my, my dissertation. I just got approval this week from the McMaster's Ethics Board, and it took me forever to get this approval, to, to interview pastors across the country, and that's what I'm doing for the next two months, asking questions to that end. How are they doing that in their communities? I'm beginning in Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, Saskatchewan, maybe Saskatoon, Winnipeg, Toronto, Ottawa, Niagara Falls, Hamilton, of course, um, Montreal. I'm just naming cities here. Across. This is a geography lesson for you kids. Um, uh, you know, uh, I'm forgetting the names. Halifax, <laughs> Fredericton, just in case you're wondering, PEI, Charlottetown. I'm asking this question, what does it mean for your church to practice downward mobility in order to have as it were, the status of a servant in your respective community. How are you serving your community? How's it going? I want to learn. We want to learn at Mercy Church. And the findings I have from all these pastors I'm going to be interviewing will come back to you over time. You can pray for me. But this morning I want to make one thing clear. That the impetus to drive the purpose of my study is not rooted in my desire to just find a fun topic to write about or to get a few extra letters behind my name. That's vainglory. That's the opposite of downward mobility. No, what I'm writing about and what we're pursuing here this morning is to help us better understand what it means to find and follow a downwardly mobile Savior. What does that mean for us? That's what we're wrestling with. Who has embraced, you could say, the path of downward mobility in order to give his life for us, and then he calls us to that same lifestyle. And this quote, I like this quote, because Christ's identity as the suffering servant is not just out there. There we have 2,000 years ago a suffering servant who ended up dying on a cross for our sins. No, Christ's identity as the suffering servant is meant to shape our identity as his followers. We become, you could say, little Christ in our present world, shaped by his identity. And his identity is completely downward in focus for the sake of of the other. He says to you this morning, pick up your cross and follow him. And so for the next few minutes, what I want to do is I want you to walk with me through scripture and I want to help you understand how much of a servant-hearted God we really have, how much of a servant-hearted Christ we really have. And as you appreciate his servant heart, my prayer is that you begin to appropriate that truth by faith and you also desire to become more like him, more servant-hearted, more willing to identify with the weak, the poor, the, un the outcast, more like Jesus. I could run a whole thread throughout Scripture and I was thinking about this week, I could spend a lot of time with you this morning just looking at 
the servant-heartedness of God as it is painted for us throughout Holy Scripture. And it's a beautiful composite picture once you get through to the end of his story. But I want to pick up a text for you from Exodus chapter 21, just to start there. Exodus 21 is just after God's people were rescued out of Egypt. God brought them through the Red Sea. He, put them, he brought them to Mount Sinai, and he gave them the Ten Commandments. And it's interesting, after he gave the Ten Commandments, one of the first laws he gives is around servanthood. This is what we read. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he, will, he shall go free without paying anything. Let's just pause there. Oh, you already clicked it over. I knew you would, so I said pause. <laughs> Let's just pause there. Already God knew, already at, in, in, in the Old Testament, God was pushing against the culture of the day. The culture of the day would say, you're a servant, you're a servant for life. There's no freedom. But God didn't rescue his people so that they would be into, enter into servitude. No, God rescued his people so that they could be set free. Amen. So he says, after six years, the seventh is a year of kind of jubilee, you could say, a year of freedom. But read now verse five. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children, whom the master gave him, and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an owl, owl. Oh, I'll, oh, how do you say this word? All. We're all on the same page here? Great. I think we have a picture of an all here. There we go. We'd like to pierce. One little girl said she had her ears pierced this morning to me, and, and I don't think it was with that, though. That seems a little painful. But that's what they do. They put it up against the doorpost. You can go back to the text. They put it back up to the doorpost and poke a hole in there, and that hole would stay for life, and they would put some kind of a ring in there. And what's the last verse of the text? If you want to scroll back to the last, the last verse of, the, of chapter 21, verse 5. Um, there we go. Then he will be his servant for life. It doesn't take a lot of logic here to see something prophetic happening. Jesus who loves his master, his father, is willing to be pierced. Jesus, you understand, is willing to be that servant for life. In fact, you could argue that when Jesus was pierced, not through his ears, as we will learn, but through his side and his hands and his feet, he became a servant for all eternity. This is prophetic. We're going to get back to that. But it's a beautiful picture of something that's going to happen many years later. But you could continue on in, the, in, in, this, in this, this picture of, of the servanthood of Christ and the, and the servanthood or the servant heart of God when you get to Isaiah. Isaiah has all these chapters about the servant, the suffering servant, near the end of, of the book of Isaiah, painting a picture, a very clear uh, prophetic picture of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And it's very interesting. Scholars have tried very, very hard to, to find what they call in the Sitzleben, that's a little bit of German for you this morning, in the life setting of Isaiah, a man who could fulfill these words that were written in Isaiah 52 and 53. But no one was found. There wasn't a king that was found that could imitate, model, be the words that, that, the, that Isaiah was writing about. 
So we read in Isaiah 52 these words about, about Jesus being this servant who comes down. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Here's a few more things. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. This happened at the cross. So he will sprinkle many nations. This is his blood. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were told, not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. This is all about Jesus. Revelation 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. So I read a different translation, same one. Revelation 21 verse 24 says these words. I didn't post that. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. They're talking about Christ. Isaiah 53 goes on to talk about how unattractive the servant king really is. He didn't have an appearance that, that people were attracted to him. You know, the people who are attracted to Jesus were not attracted to him by his appearance. They were attracted to his heart. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. What attracts you to Jesus Christ this morning, if you're interested in the Christian faith, will be the heart of Christ. Not his outward appearance, though once we see him in glory, he'll be beyond beautiful. But when he walked among us, it was his heart, his compassion, his kindness, the truth, the beauty of the words that came from his mouth that attracted people to him. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And it goes on. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. But then it says in verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, he was healed. We're talking about a servant here. A servant who loved his master, who would be pierced for our transgressions. As I said earlier, the piercing wasn't going to be in his ear. The piercing was going to be in his side, in his hands, in his feet. But in the side, they argue, it went right into his heart. That's where he was pierced. And loved ones, mark my words, you will not miss his wounds when you meet him on the shores of eternity. You will not miss his wounds when you meet your Savior on the shore of eternity. He was pierced as a forever servant to his father, and to his church. 700 years later, this prophecy that was written by Isaiah came to be fully fulfilled, and Jesus began to live among us. The word from the beginning, one with God, the word, the Lord most high, his hidden glory in creation now revealed in you, our Christ. 
His word became flesh, we read in John 1, and he dwelt among us. This king who became a servant and lived among us. He gave up a position of glory and became vulnerable. He became dependent on God the Father and the Holy Spirit to empower him. He said in so many words, I am a servant who loves his master. Your will be done. That's what a servant says. Jesus said that. Just quickly, he was born, you could say, the forever servant. He was born to a humble woman from a remote town in Galilee. He was born amongst the animals allotted to servitude. He was a, a displaced refugee. He grew up on the streets of Nazareth. He had no ivy school to bolster his credentials. He was baptized like the rest of sinners, but had never sinned. He was driven into the wilderness to meet the devil, the father of lies, and their loved ones. The servant heart of Jesus was tested beyond the pale of anyone who has ever walked on planet earth in the desert in the wilderness in the wilderness he withstood the test to become relevant in the eyes of people in the wilderness he withstood the test to receive the status for his spectacular feats and in the wilderness he withstood the test to have power given to him so that all the peoples would just bend to him without the cross He said, no, 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 every time to Satan because he was a servant and he came to do his master's will. His master's will was to be that he would die for his people. His whole life was one of humility. His whole life was characterized by downward mobility. His whole life was characterized by servanthood and he brought that to his death. This was the path and the only path, loved ones our salvation you understand you can't you can't be indifferent to this and if you are indifferent to what he had to do to save you to be marred beyond the beyond human recognition to be pierced to be crushed if that makes if that's indifferent to you If you're indifferent to that reality, my heart breaks in a thousand pieces for you. There is only one Savior, and He is a humble Savior. And He's a servant-hearted Savior. And He says, now I want you to follow me. I want you, by the Spirit of God living in you, to embrace my downwardly mobile lifestyle. I want you to embrace this type of an identity as a follower of me. Paul says your attitude, your mindset should be the same as Jesus. It doesn't mean that you need to go to the cross because the cross is finished, but you still need to pick up your cross. Jesus' mindset is simply this. It's, not, it, it's self-giving, not, not selfish. It's selfless. It's downwardly, not upwardly mobile. And for this reason, Henry Nouwen argues the divine way is indeed the downward way and only the downward way. If you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, what identifies you with him is your servant heart. If you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, what identifies you in Him 
is your servant heart. But this is where the rubber hits the road. I'm going to finish with this. This is where the toe pinches. This is where the wheel rubs. I was trying to find more illustrations on that point. I'm like, what's the modern way of saying that? I used to hear that like 25 years ago already. Because this, the reason why this is where the toe rubs, or this is, why, this is where the rubber hits the road in our Christian life, is because we don't really want to embrace a servant as our Savior. We are much more captivated by what we see and touch, by what's great and strong and powerful, not what's weak. We're much more upwardly mobile in our thinking. And that's my second and last point, admitting the challenge of escaping the upwardly mobile lure. To be upwardly mobile, again, in sociological terms, is the capacity or facility for rising to a higher social or economic position. That's what it means to be upwardly mobile in a sociological worldview, is to raise, rise yourself to a higher social or economic position. Now, listen, there's nothing wrong to have the capacity or the facility to be able to continue to improve, to grow, to grow your business, to get a better education. What is wrong is the selfish ambition that might lie behind your motives for the education, for the increased work, for the bigger house, for the nicer boat. It's what lies behind it that pushes you in this upwardly mobile trajectory. Because if we're going to be really honest this morning, and I think we should be honest, the church is one place where you need to be very honest. To be really honest this morning, the downward way of Christ, the selfless way of Christ, the self-giving way of Christ, the humble way of Christ, the ambition of Christ, solely focused on the other, is resisted in our hearts. If we're really honest, it's resisted in my heart, and I think I just, I have the human condition that we all have. My sinful desires wants, delights to live in this world as if I or somehow can use my capacity for more gain for me. It, it's a fierce battle in my soul. I don't know if it's a fierce battle in yours, but I'm fighting this reality. Our sinful nature is not conditioned to think like Jesus on his downward path. Downward path. No, uh, my sinful condition and yours does not desire to identify with humility and a tender heart for the hurting and the broken, to identify with those who are weak. No, we want to identify with the wealthy, with the powerful, with those who have status, with those who have relevance, with those who have influence, with those who have strength. We want to live their dream, and we want to live it with ease. That's where we want to identify ourselves. See, our sinful nature can pay lip service to the downward way of Jesus, and we can sing with all our might. But we still believe in, the heart, in our heart that those who are poor, those who are broken, those who are marginalized, those who are unnetworked are there because of their own making. Contrary to truth, we can believe that lie. 
Our sinful nature can sing songs about Jesus who is the servant king, but we can believe our wealth and material possessions are somehow entitled to us. And we deserve to live the upwardly mobile path that we are on. We deserve it. Our sinful nature believes the lie that nothing good can come from weakness, from meekness, from powerlessness, from all that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that is blessed. Our sinful nature makes upwardly mobi- upward mobility a religion. And what we do, we, we cover this religion in a, in a religious garb. And so what we have often, and, I, and I've heard it spoken about, and it, and it irks me, but it probably lives in my heart as well, that we have this, this materialism that, that, just per, that we're pursuing, but we, we sanctify the materialism with integrity. We sanctify the materialism with honesty. The idol's still at the center, but we're, we're protecting the idol with good character. That's sanctified materialism. I don't know if that's a phrase. I just made it up. But it's a problem in the West, maybe in the South. You see, the lure, the lure to this kind of upward mobility is strong. And loved ones, we need to just call it out. We just need to call it out. It might be our greatest idol. Paul calls it out. He calls it selfish ambition. He calls it vain conceit. He calls it pride. And the fallout of this kind of selfish ambition and vain conceit and pride is indifference to the broken, to the hurting, to the poor, to the trafficked, to the marginalized. We just say, that's their problem. I'm, on my, I'm reaching my goals, brah. Rather than walk with them, we walk away from them. We do not let them experience the healing balm of Christ together because we are selfish in our ambition. We're on another trajectory. Henry Nouwen says, the disciple is the one who follows Jesus on his downward path and thus enters with him into new life. The gospel radically subverts the presuppositions of our upwardly mobile society. It is a jarring and unsettling challenge. I agree with Nowen on this point. It's a challenge we all face at some level. It's a challenge that calls us back to gospel-centered living. It's a challenge that forces our eyes back on the suffering servant, and his name is Jesus. It's a challenge that asks this question, if Jesus would not go free from his blessed undertaking, will you ever desire to go free from the service of his love? If Jesus would not go free, if Jesus is the forever servant who got pierced, you could say, so he would say, I love my master more and I will serve my bride, I will serve the church for all eternity. If Jesus would not go free from his blessed undertaking, will you ever desire to go free from the service of his love? And the service of his love is a downward mobile path to sharing that love with others. Because the great paradox which Scripture suggests is that real and total freedom may only be found actually through downward mobility. 
Jesus, help us to know what it means to follow your downward path, to reflect you truly in a broken world, and to live the paradox that freedom is found when we fully surrender our will and our desires to you. May this, O Christ, be our spiritual act of worship. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. Some of what we read and heard about this morning makes us feel very unsettled. The gospel is so anti-society, anti-culture. We vote people into power because we want to see more wealth. We want to see more power. We want to procure a better life. That's why we vote people into power. But the most powerful one came to heaven and, and, he, and he went in the opposite direction. He didn't promote more wealth, more fame, more relevance. He promoted humility, <laughs> servitude, gentleness, compassion, tenderness, care. God, help us to adopt the mindset of our Savior. We so quickly are categorized by this world just to think that we're entitled to the things we have and just pursue them at, at, at almost no cost. But it costs our soul. So Lord, forgive us. Give us the mindset of Jesus, we pray. We thank you for him. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.